0: If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, as Tim kind of alluded earlier, we just started a new fall sermon series called The Shape of the Liturgy, where we're addressing two big questions. Why is the liturgy shaped like it is, and how is the liturgy shaping us? If you're like me, and most of you are, you didn't grow up Anglican. And so the liturgy, even if you've been here for a few years now, is not so familiar as to be second nature. For so many of us, the reason that Trinity is your home is because liturgical worship, like you experience here, it draws you. It's something that's powerful, that's moving, that you find engaging to your whole person as you worship God. And so we're, we're taking some time to explore the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. Why is the Eucharistic liturgy that we engage every Sunday so meaningful, so powerful, and how is God meeting us and moving in this place when we worship him. And so Pastor Tim did kind of a preliminary couple of weeks in the last two weeks here talking about what is liturgy and talking about why we need to gather. So if you've ever missed his sermons, I encourage you, go to our YouTube page. You can find a link to our YouTube page on our website. You can catch those sermons at any time. But what that means for today is that we get to actually look at the start of our worship. And we start our worship with song And with acclamation. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. And before I jump into exploring that with you, I just want to say a little little caveat, a little something I'm aware of when we talk about singing, when we talk about worship. Not all of us are as, as musically gifted as others. Daniel up here who is playing violin can play like 12 other instruments, and his wife Allie is a professional music therapist, and then there's others like me who can hardly clap in time, let alone play an instrument, and some of you out there have have albums of music that we could go listen to online. I'm not going to, you know, sell you out right now and make you all uncomfortable, but you know if I'm talking about you. Some of us are really gifted. Some of us not so gifted right here. <laughs> and so you might have the temptation to believe, oh, our worship, it's kind of like a scattershot attempt. Some people are musical. Some people are intellectuals. They want the sermon. Some people are really engaged with the liturgy of the table. That's not it at all. All of worship is meant for you, whether you're musically inclined or not. The whole service is meant for you to engage into to worship. And it's commanded of us. In scripture, about just like one million times, we're told to praise God. Don't quote me on that number, but it's a lot. We are called to worship God. So why do we do it? Why do we worship God in song? And why do we start with acclamation and praise? So I'd say there are three reasons that we're going to find in our main text today, Psalm 95. When we sing together, the Holy Spirit moves in us to reorient our minds to the story of God, to reorient our hearts to love and delight in God, and He reorients our relationships so that we draw ever nearer in communion with our Heavenly Father. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. We probably could have gone to a dozen different places when we talk about singing in the corporate worship of our church. But this psalm holds together some really important ideas that are echoed throughout the Old and New Testament. So Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord, and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God a great king above all gods, and in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, uh, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Our psalm starts the same way that our liturgy starts. Praise to God. Let us sing a song of praise. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Many Anglican churches actually don't start with a song. They start with the acclamation. Blessed be God. Why do we start there? Well, there's some big assumptions happening both in our liturgy and in this psalm. Think about it for a moment. How weird would it be to come into this place to worship if you had never read any of the Bible before? If you had never heard about Jesus before? If you had never known God as your Savior? The assumption of the psalm and the assumption of our liturgy is that you know God. That you know God as your rock, as your salvation. The assumption of the acclamation is that you know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you know that it is blessed to be in his kingdom. The assumption is that you know the goodness of God personally. That you know God. And that's powerful. We come into this place and worship together. And the assumption is that you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, that you have been drawn into His family, that you know this God. That's the shape of the liturgy. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But the way that it shapes us is that the inverse is true. Not only does... Not only does knowing God lead to worship, but worshiping God leads to knowing Him greater. Martin Luther had this phrase, to know God is to worship God. He had this, this belief that if you have been transformed by the Spirit, if, you have, if God has revealed Himself to you to be your Savior, your rock, your King, then you'll inevitably worship Him. But the inverse is true as well. If you come into this place and worship God, you are going to begin to know Him more deeply, to know Him more truly, to love Him more deeply. When we worship, we are changed and we are are brought into these greater and deeper truths that we claim to follow. Doxology, right worship, builds and, and enforces and strengthens orthodoxy, right belief, They go hand in hand and we need the power of doxology, of right worship to reorient our minds to the true story of God week in and week out. Many of you guys know this, we are creatures of story and we are constantly being bombarded with stories. The moment you leave church every Sunday, you probably already have some kind of advertisement in your inbox, or on the main page of your browser, or wherever you go for news, there's there's constantly advertisements, constantly movies and TV shows, there are stories being presented to you everywhere you look. And most stories are not the story of scripture. They are not the story of God as your savior and you as the redeemed. And so we need to have our our stories that we tell ourselves reoriented over and over again. Just as a small example, there was a a famous Christian author, Donald Miller, who wrote Blue Like Jazz almost two decades ago. And I don't actually know if he's still writing, but I know that he's in business now and he has a business called Story Brand. And it's, it's all about marketing. The idea that you can market your services, you can market your product through the means of story. And I'm not trying to like dunk on Donald Miller or say that that's wrong necessarily. In fact, story can be leveraged for immense good in all kinds of ways. But the point is, if Donald Miller figured this out, then every major marketing firm in the world already knows this. Every major marketing uh, division of every large company already knows this. Today, nothing is sold to you based on the merits of the product. And I'm not even saying that the product doesn't have merits, it's sold to you based. on a story that they want to tell you, a story that they believe you want to live, and the reality is constantly we're being bombarded with these messages about how we are the hero of our own story, and if we just had this product or this service, we could get over that bump in our story and become the hero we're we're meant to be, become who we're supposed to be. We're constantly being told these stories, and we're constantly having to, to reorient our minds to what is actually true. Tim gave a a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer not that long ago, and his final sermon in the series was on the concluding line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And he, he equated it to like a movie. He said, God is the director, the producer, and the star of the story, not us. I need that reorientation because every story out there is telling me that I'm the star, and if I just had the right tools, I would thrive. But the reality is I'm not the star of the story. Jesus is. And every story that's being told to me is saying that I have the power, with just a little help, to make massive change in my life or in others'. But the reality is I don't. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the producer, the one who has the power to make change and transformation in my life. And every story out there is saying, you can determine the ending. You can determine where you're going and the creative direction of your life. But I need to be reoriented to the fact that God the Father is the creative director, the one who is sovereign over my whole life. We are constantly being told, what the world is, what story we're living in, who we are, what God is like, and so much of these stories has nothing to do with the story of redemption that we find in Scripture. Nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with sinners in need of a Redeemer. We need to have our minds reoriented again and again, and there is something uniquely powerful about song as opposed to prose song in a unique way draws our minds to these central truths like we were just singing we were just singing Holy Spirit you need to breathe into me and then my breath comes back out as praise to God we were just singing about the goodness of God I loved that line what, what could happen in your life based on the friendship of God on your behalf These stories we tell ourselves when we come together and sing are crucial to reorient our minds around the gospel of Jesus. I need, in Christ alone, I need, great is thy faithfulness. I need, Jesus paid it all, to remind me what I truly believe. To week in and week out have my mind reoriented to the story of God rather than all the false stories I've been told all week long. We need that reorientation. And and when we sing together, that happens. The Spirit is moving. The Spirit is communicating to you these gospel truths that you so desperately need. Aaron has a really important job. When he's picking songs, he is week in and week out helping us regather our minds and our imaginations around the gospel. Now, I told you we would come back to this concept of the shape of the liturgy. Because I have one more thought on this idea of the, the reorientation of the mind that the Holy Spirit does when we gather to sing. We've just said that the Holy Spirit is at work among God's people when we sing to remind us, like our psalm says, that He's the maker of all things, that He's the creator of all things, that He's our shepherd who cares for us, that He is our God and our King. The Spirit is reorienting our minds, but it's not just us. There are also unbelievers among us when we worship. There was a a coach in my life. I did a youth ministry coaching program a handful of years ago and this coach Marco had been in youth ministry for more than three decades. And he talks about this shift that he saw in youth culture relatively recently in the last decade or so. How at the beginning of his career he would know every single time when he went to speak at a youth event who the non-believers were in the room. They would be in the back, arms folded, maybe a scowl on their face because their friend invited them and maybe didn't tell them what they were really going to and they didn't want to be there. But something has changed. In the last decade or so, Marco will see students worshiping Jesus in the front row as the band is singing their last song before Marco comes up to preach. And then he'll see that same student in the hallway afterwards and the student will say something like, hey, I'm really interested in hearing more about this Jesus that you talked about. And Marco's a little taken aback. You were worshiping him. And inevitably, these students will say something to the effect of, I was just trying it on. If you are an unbeliever in this room, I would encourage you lean in, try it on. The shape of the liturgy is meant for God's people who know his story, but it does not exclude you. The shape of the liturgy can also be a powerful place where you can meet with the Holy Spirit and He can guide you to know Jesus in a way you've maybe never known Him before. Our worship has a powerful impact on our minds and our imaginations, but it doesn't stop there. So far, everything I've said could pretty much be agreeable with the crowd of people that might say, I don't sing. So we need to go further. It's more than that. It also affects our heart. When we sing, the Holy Spirit is not just reorienting our minds and our imaginations, but the affections of our hearts to love and delight in God. Would you look with me again to Psalm 95? I'm going to begin in verses 1 and 2, but then I'm going to hop down to verses 7 through 10. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Down to verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as at, on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. In our psalm, there's an inference being made about the wilderness generation. This generation that had seen the mighty hand of God save them from slavery in Egypt, and then turned from him, rejected him, didn't trust him. There's an inference here. The the text explicitly tells us the problem was with their hearts. And what does the psalmist pair this problem with? Psalms of praise. Songs of praising God's glory and God's goodness. The, The remedy to a hard heart, according to our psalmist, is to sing about God's goodness The thing that he's connecting is that the people in the wilderness generation were so consumed with themselves. They were so consumed with their own circumstances that they said things like, why have you brought us out here to die? At least back in Egypt, we had water and food. They were so consumed with themselves and their own circumstances rather than being consumed with the goodness of God, the salvation of God, praising God for all that he had done to redeem them. They were so caught up on themselves, turned in on themselves. And so the psalmist teaches us the remedy for being turned in on yourself is to sing about God's goodness, to sing about God's glory, to sing about the mighty works that God has done and all that He is for us. And it's not just in the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches us the same thing. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Be filled with the Spirit and sing to the Lord with your heart. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in your heart. All over the Bible, there is this strong pairing between singing God's praises and what the Spirit is doing in your heart to fill you with love and thanks and joy and delight in God. We sing because we need our hearts moved. We need our affections drawn towards God. Worship is not just about our mind, not just about our imagination, but about our very hearts, our very loves. Do we love God? Do we desire God? Do we long for Him? In his classic work, The Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards put it like this, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Trinity, we need our affections moved. Some of us have come from a very low affect, low emotion culture. Maybe you're from a Presbyterian church or maybe even a Dutch Reformed church. And it was like, no emotion. All we do is stoic here. And the emphasis on the mind, the emphasis on doctrine is so good and it needs to be paired with so much more. We need our hearts to be moved. Psalm 84.2 says this, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You were made to not only worship God with your mind, but to worship God with your heart, with your whole self. You were made to long for God with your flesh just as much as your mind. We cannot deny our emotional selves. Our emotional life needs to be brought up into our faith. We need to worship with tears and joy and sorrow and all the whole range, the whole mix of emotions. God wants our hearts. Christians are not Gnostics. We do not believe that if we leave the fleshly behind, if we leave behind our emotions, we're going to have a more enlightened spirituality. If you are not engaging your emotions in your faith, your faith is actually stunted. You need to worship God with your heart. And song is this incredible means by which the Holy Spirit moves in us. We all know that experience of being just deeply moved by a song of praise, deeply moved by a psalm. We need these songs to move in us. Once again, I'm going to turn to Jonathan Edwards. He's got a really long quote here, but he makes this this emphasis that we need to hear. I want to make this case strongly. He says, I am bold to assert that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any one person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw that had not his affections moved. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation. Never were any such brought to cry after wisdom and lift up their voice for understanding and to wrestle with God in prayer for mercy. And never was one humbled and brought to the foot of God from anything that ever he heard or imagined of his own unworthiness and undeserving of God's pleasure. Nor was ever one induced to fly for refuge unto Christ while his heart remained unaffected. Nor was there ever a saint talking to you Awakened out of a cold, lifeless frame or recovering from a declining state in religion and brought back from a lamentable departure from God without having his heart affected. In a word, there never was anything considerable brought to pass in the heart or life of any man by the things of religion that had not his heart deeply affected by those things. You cannot worship God You cannot know Him. You cannot love Him. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if your heart is not moved. It is just biblical. It is just the facts. You cannot love God unless your heart is in it. I had a professor at Denver Seminary who once told me, fall in love. Stay in love. It determines everything. Everything in your life is determined by what you love. Do you love God? Trinity, how is your heart? Where are you at today? Do you love and delight in Jesus? Do you want nothing more than to be in his presence? What is the love of your heart? The Holy Spirit is ready to meet you when we gather to sing his praises. It is a means of grace to draw ever more into love with our Savior, to delight in him, to enjoy him. What song do you sing? While you're by yourself, while you're in your car, what are you singing with your family? What are you singing? And I'm being literal here. The song lately for me that has just moved me, when I'm alone, I sing, Give Me Jesus. There are a lot of versions of it, but I love Fernando Ortega's version. Give Me Jesus. And every time I listen to that song, I notice the spirit working in my heart to create a new desire for Jesus and to desire less and less the things of this world. Find that song. Worship in your home. Worship with your family and come here and worship. It's not emotional manipulation. It is God himself knowing how he fashioned us and framed us. He knows we need our hearts moved by the spirit when we gather to worship. But there's still one more reason why we gather to worship and sing God's praises. Not only does the Holy Spirit reorient our minds and our imaginations to the true story of God, and our hearts to delight and love in God, but He also reorients the way we relate to God, our Heavenly Father. Look back at verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts. Why do we sing? Just because he's God? Because he's king? Yeah. But more than that, because he's our God. Because he's our king, our savior, our shepherd. He uses the very same metaphor that Jesus uses with his disciples. How does God want to relate to us like a loving, caring shepherd over his sheep? God wants a relationship with us. God wants to commune with us. And not just as a ruler over the ruled, as a king over his servants, but as a father with his children, as a good shepherd with his sheep. He wants that kind of relationship. And the amazing thing is that he sings to us first. He calls out to us first. Psalm 95 doesn't say it explicitly, but we'll get to Zephaniah 3.17 in just a moment. But his voice cries out. He is speaking. He wants to be in relationship with his children. He wants you to know him more deeply. He is calling out, will you respond? Zephaniah 3.17 now brings the full picture. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a beautiful passage. Many of you guys know that Megan and I just had our first child, Orson, uh, just shy of two months ago. And like most new parents, we are head over heels in love with Orson. He is amazing. We can't get enough of him. And so we are just constantly taking a million pictures and talking to everybody about him. We can't get enough of our beautiful boy that we love so much. And we can't help but to sing over him. Every song in the world gets a remix to be made about Orson. We're constantly singing silly little chimes to him. Parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. You've been in that place where you just couldn't help but to exult in love over your child with song. When I was a little boy, I remember my mom singing over me. She would sing, You are my sunshine. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. My mom has told me a million different ways that she loves me, and I don't know that any have pierced my heart the way her singing over me did. Church, Hear this message. This is a gift of the gospel. If you have put your faith in Jesus, this is the way that God sings over you. This parental doting love is the love that the Father has over you. He can't get enough of you. He is obsessed with you. He delights in you. He breaks out into song over you. And he quiets you by his love when you're in distress. The same way that I shush and sway Orson when he cries. That's the love that God has for you. And here's my question Don't you want to sing with him? He wants you to join, he wants to sing with you. Don't you want to sing with him? He loves you. We come together to sing. Not only because it changes our minds and our hearts, because we get to draw ever nearer into our communion with our loving Father when we sing to Him. He's singing over you. Will you sing with Him this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would know that fatherly love this morning we would know that deep delight and joy that the psalmist talks about. We would desire nothing more than Jesus. We would have the Spirit move among us today. Would you grant that request, God? Would you move in our hearts to give us renewed faith, renewed hope, renewed vision for your kingdom? And would you give us a deeper and deeper communion and love with you, O oh God? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.